facial nerve is often reduced to being called the nerve to the muscles of facial expression. And whilst this is in part true, there is so much more to the anatomy than that. Today, let's explore some of the details of this cranial nerve. Let's discuss its root, its main branches, and for clinical relevance, let's talk about facial palsies using the anatomy to explain the symptoms a patient might experience. Now, I'm not going to delve into upper versus lower motor neuron facial palsies in this episode, but instead I'll dedicate a future podcast solely to covering that anatomy. So let's discuss the anatomy of cranial nerve 7, the facial nerve. Okay, I'm going to start the timer, but I've no doubt I'm going over on this one. The facial nerve is the seventh cranial nerve, and as with all cranial nerves, it leaves the ventral surface or underside of the brain. It actually begins life as two distinct nerves, a large motor branch, and a much smaller sensory nerve called the intermediate nerve. These two join to form a single nerve or bundle of axons we affectionately call the facial nerve. If you have ever heard Sam talk on this topic, he refers to the facial nerve as the weepy, snotty, dribbly nerve of the face, and this is actually a much better description of its function, but we'll get to that. The facial nerve then leaves the brainstem at the pons, and after a short intracranial route, it passes into one of the foramen inside the skull, called the internal acoustic meatus, or IAM for short. You may have heard me refer to this hole as the back door to the ear, which is in essence what it is. After entering the internal acoustic meatus, the nerve is now inside the temporal bone, and so by definition, inside the sensory organ of hearing imbalance, hence back door. The front door, of course, is the external auditory meatus, or ear canal. The facial nerve then is going to meander through this bone, first through the inner ear, then through the middle ear space, before leaving the skull to supply the face. But before it does this, it gives off a number of branches we should examine in more detail. Said branches will help us explain the varied function. Let's follow its course then. After entering the temporal bone, the nerve first makes a very sharp turn, creating an almost 90 degree bend. Early anatomists describe this bend as knee-shaped, and the name stuck, as we call it geniculate. And here we find the geniculate ganglion, or the knee-shaped ganglion. And we'll talk in much more detail about this another time. Now, immediately after this bend, we see the first of three branches given off inside the temporal bone. The first branch is the greater superficial petrosal nerve, and it facilitates parasympathetic supply to the lacrimal or tear glands of the eyes, but it also contributes to the mucus-producing glands in the nose, hence snotty-weepy. Continuing our journey from the petrosal branch, the rest of the nerve fibres continue their course through a bony canal called the facial canal, and this passes through the middle ear space. Inside this space, we see two further branches. The first of these is the stapedius nerve, and that innervates the stapedius muscle. Pretty handy. And as the name suggests, this muscle attaches to the stapes, or the smallest ear bone. This nerve, and therefore muscle, have the role of dampening down loud sounds by reducing vibration to the stapes, and thus protect the sensitive hearing organ of the cochlea. I could and have spoken about this small nerve for many hours discussing its actual function, but I'll spare you that pain for now. But do ask me if we have crossed paths. The third and final intratemporal branch is called the corda tympani, or corda tympani. And this nerve carries parasympathetic fibres to the submandibular and submental salivary glands to produce saliva. This is the dribbly part of the nerve. More than that, the corda tympani also receives special sensory fibres from the anterior two-thirds of the tongue, providing taste to this area. 
After giving up these branches then and zigzagging its way through the year, the facial nerve finally leaves the temporal bone through a small hole called the stylomastoid foramen, posterior and inferior to the pinna. From this foramen, the nerve passes through the parotid gland, but does not supply it, and instead here it gives off multiple branches that supply the muscles of facial expression. There are many famous mnemonics to remember these branches, one of them being to Zanzibar by Motorcar, where temporal, zygomatic, buccal or buccal, marginal and mandibular and cervical nerve branches allow us to raise our eyebrows, clench our eyes tight, puff out our cheeks, smile and grimace. There's a posterior auricular branch not included in the mnemonic, but most people cannot wiggle their pinna anymore, making this branch largely vestigial. But you may have experienced this in action, or at least in attempting to action, when startled by a loud sound as you experience a tingling posterior to the pinna. This is similar to the partly vestigial erecta pili muscles found in our skin that in some animals cause the hairs to stand on end, whereas we experience a shiver down the spine. So that is the basics of the facial nerve. Motor to the muscles of facial expression, yes, but also facilitate tear, snot and saliva production. It's protective to hearing and allows taste to the anterior tongue. Perhaps then we should call it the weepy, snotty, dribbly, tasty, not so loudy, surprisey, eye clenchy, puffy cheeky and grimacy nerve of the face. But I don't think that's as catchy as Sam's version. Now let's finish with some clinical relevance. The facial nerve can and does become damaged by anything that disrupts its nerve fibres along its tortuous route. And this results in a facial nerve palsy with paralysis of the muscles of facial expression. It can also result in other symptoms explained by those intratemporal branches we mentioned previously. The patient may experience dry eyes where the lacrimal gland loses its innervation, but interestingly the opposite symptom of epiphora or watery eyes is far more common. This is the result of the patient being unable to close their eye and subsequently losing the function of the mechanical windscreen wiper that is our eyelids. Hyperacusis is a common complaint in facial palsy, which, unlike its sounds, is not so much a superpower, but instead more sensitivity to hearing. Funny enough, patients never complain of losing taste to the unilateral anterior two-thirds of their tongue, but instead may complain of a metallic taste in their mouth, where the corda tympani is affected. There are hundreds of causes of facial palsy that range from a stroke to the diagnosis of exclusion we call a Bell's palsy that is caused by a virus damaging the facial nerve. However, a middle ear full of pus, a laceration to the face, even a parotid cancer could all damage the nerve and depending where it's damaged will depend on the symptoms they experience. Perhaps the most important part of diagnosing a facial palsy is differentiating between an upper versus lower motor neuron palsy, and we'll dive into that anatomy next time. Thanks a lot for listening. My name is Chris Summers, and don't worry, we won't tell anyone about you trying to wiggle your pinna midway through the podcast. Catch you next time on Dissectable Me.